0: Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this episode, it's about to get lit, or rare-y. We're talking with John Garrison, Associate Professor of English here at the college, about Shakespeare and the afterlife. Then we'll talk with his Dutch colleague and collaborator, jan Frans van Dekausen, Associate Professor of English Literature at Leiden University in the Netherlands, about the literary history of reconciliation. This week's show is coming up next, after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. John Garrison was teaching a course on how different cultures approach the question of what happens after death. As a devoted Shakespeare scholar, Garrison then turned to the Bard for answers to this age-old question. But no matter how advanced we get technologically, the question still eludes us. What happens when we die? Many people have offered their opinions on the question, but none, as far as I know, have answered it satisfactorily. If it is unknowable, then why the heck are we talking about it?
1: John had a few ideas. The way a culture thinks about the afterlife, whether there's a heaven, whether there's a hell, whether people are rewarded, whether people are punished, whether people return, whether nothing happens, tells us a lot about the culture itself. In other words, cultures project onto the afterlife their values. So what people are punished or rewarded for in the afterlife, as imagined by a culture, tells us what that culture values. So although we can't really know what happens after death, I think what we can know is that what people imagine happens after death tells us a lot about those people themselves.
0: Yeah, and it impacts the way that we choose to live our lives in a way as well.
1: Yeah, many of us, if we think that at some point we're going to be judged, assessed, evaluated, and that's going to determine what happens to us really for an eternity after we die, that puts a lot of pressure on the decision whether or not to report all your earnings on your tax return, <laughs> which I do, by the way. <laughs> um, a while back I talked
0: with your, your colleague uh, Jan Franz van der Well said. Thank you. He will be proud. Uh, Who has written on kind of such grim topics before as death. And he was also a a delightful man, as are you, by all indications. He is,
1: I agree. Uh, One of my favorite people from the Netherlands.
0: (laughs) So how did you gravitate towards this subject, which can be a little morbid at times?
1: Well, Jan's work focuses on reconciliation and forgiveness between people. So one of the sites that takes place for him is the deathbed, where family members come together and reconcile, or one reconciles themselves to God or the sins they've committed. And because of that, there's a lot of intersection between Jan and my work in the sense that I was very interested in the deathbed as a site where one is sort of coming very close to the threshold of the afterlife. I think if our confrontation with the afterlife is a confrontation with the unknowable, and if talking about the afterlife admits that death could come at any moment, then I think, to some extent, there's no reason not to be funny and not to look at the world humorously. And it's, it's, I mean, at its most basic level, it's a coping mechanism. But I think um, knowing that death is always kind of around the corner, that it's that much more important to think that life is uh, less consequential.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, I think we see this in in the speech by Macbeth where he likens life to a shadow. So in other words, we can add a certain lightness to life. We can joke about life knowing that uh, that death itself just sort of looms on the horizon for it. Yeah. So
0: we talk a lot about death in the book, but it's called Shakespeare and the afterlife, not Shakespeare and
1: death. It's true.
0: So what are you trying to do with, with the book? And why are you looking at how Shakespeare deals with these complex questions?
1: Well, on the one hand, I think that Shakespeare has always been someone who people have gone to when they're wrestling with the big questions. What to do with one's life? What is ethical? What is justice? How should we treat each other? What does it mean to fall in love? These are questions that I think for the past 400 years, you can find people going to Shakespeare to answer, either through examples of characters who act out in certain ways that seem true to us or in Shakespeare's sort of deeper meditations on the very complexity of those questions themselves. So I feel like the afterlife is one of these topics that, in one way or another, all of us wrestle with. Whatever beliefs we have now, I think there was a point at which we sort of wondered what happens after death and took in different kinds of information and tried to assess it. So why not go to Shakespeare? But another reason that I went to Shakespeare for the book is that One would think that Shakespeare, coming from this highly Protestant, highly regulated society in terms of its Christian beliefs, Shakespeare lived in a time where you'd be fined for not going to church. You would think that he would have one singular view across his plays and poems about what happens after death, and that that view would very closely match the predominant Christian views. And what's been surprising to me in my own study of Shakespeare is that there are a wide array of views about what happens after death. In fact, it's hard to really pin down any agreed upon conception of what happens in the afterlife. And that very diversity was really intriguing to me. Um, and it really pointed out to me the degree to which Shakespeare is truly an iconoclast, both because he's going against many of the preconceptions of his culture, but also refusing to give us any singular answer.
0: Yeah, you found that, for the most part, his characters' ideas of death are particular to the characters themselves and their lives and the context in which the play occurs. How does Shakespeare use that kind of freedom to play with these different ideas about death?
1: A great example of this is Hamlet's encounter with the ghost of his father. In what is probably the most famous speech in all of Shakespeare's work and, in fact, in all of English literature— is Shakespeare's To Be or Not to Be speech. And in that speech, he describes death or the afterlife as the undiscovered country from which no traveler returns. And on the one hand, that strikes us as true, that no one comes back from death. Um, we'd, like most of us have never spoken with ghosts. And in fact, in the early modern period, in Shakespeare's period, it was widely believed that ghosts were not real, that they were sort of a figment of the Catholic imagination and Catholic beliefs were... Excised with the coming of Protestantism. So, this all seems well and good that Hamlet will say, well, there's no such thing as ghosts and no one's ever spoken with anyone who's died. But of course, we realize that one of the most famous moments in all of Shakespeare and perhaps in all of English literature, is Hamlet's encounter with his father that takes place shortly beforehand. Hamlet meets the ghost of his father and the ghost of his father tells him to get revenge on, um, his uncle, spoiler alert, who (laughs) killed his father. So even there, we can see that the very action of the play where audience members and Hamlet have seen a ghost, where the ghost demands are what's driving the narrative of the play and in fact, helping Hamlet know what to do with his life is in direct opposition to what Hamlet tells us is the truth of the world or the truth of the afterlife, which is that no one returns.
0: So how do the characters kind of make sense of death using their own experiences? Because in a lot of ways it's like projecting your life onto you know another life that will come possibly.
1: So quite often in Shakespeare, both in the tragedies and in the comedies, we find characters who are coming very close to death either in the example of um, King Lear who reconciles with his daughter Cordelia because he senses that his own death is coming shortly, in the example of Romeo and Juliet who sort of, as we recall, sort of wake briefly and imagine the other has died. And another great example of this is Claudio um, in Measure for Measure is someone who has been thrown into prison and sentenced to death because he has impregnated a woman, before they were legally married. And when he imagines death, he remarks that he'll greet death as a bride. So he imagines that death itself will be this dark female figure who will embrace him in this very romantic embrace. And while we might think at first, oh, that's a very sort of comfortable way to imagine encountering death, when we think about the situation that puts him in danger of being killed, we realize that his vision of death is that very act that is, coupling with a woman, that that very act that sentenced him to death is the way he expects to die. And we see this really across Shakespeare, that people are making sense of why they are dying, what death will look like, what life will look like after death, is very closely related to the reason they've come to this moment in the play where they're about to die.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of death in Shakespeare's plays. A lot of the plays end up with, you know, more than half the cast gone yeah, by the end of the Littered across play. the... <laughs> across the stage and in the audience and just... Is that a function of the theater itself or is he particularly interested in the theme of death?
1: I think another way to ask that question is... No, you don't get to choose
0: on. Okay. <laughs> this is what I do.
1: I ask the questions. I'm a professor of English. <laughs> I think... The many bodies that litter Shakespeare's plays relate to the function of the theater itself. In other words, Shakespeare is not obsessed with death, but rather Shakespeare is using death in such a way to help us think about how the theater operates. So one way we can think of the theater is as a resurrection machine. We can think of the theater as a space where people do actually come back to life, where we actually can encounter ghosts. This is true in the history plays. Where early modern audiences or even contemporary audiences can go and they can see a play where Henry V walks across the stage or Julius Caesar makes a famous speech. There's a way in which the theater itself is capable of bringing long dead figures back to life, even if we're going to see them be killed again that night. But it's also true of the fictional characters that Shakespeare creates, even in the comedies, for example. Um, If a character dies at the end of the play, we still know that that character is going to come back to life the next night when the actor reappears as that character. So I think there's something about going to the theater and experiencing death that is counterintuitively really reassuring for us. In other words, we get to see that people who have died, whether long ago or in the moment, actually will come back, will be resurrected. I think maybe one thing we can think about is that one of our fears of dying is that we won't see our loved ones again. And one of our big questions about the afterlife is, will we reunite? Will these people who have passed before us or will pass after us, will we all get back together again in heaven and be able to be together? And I think the theater gives us, just for a moment, the fulfillment of this fantasy that people who die will come back, that people who we miss might actually revisit us even for a brief period of time. I think we see this again and again in Shakespeare's theater.
0: Hmm. I want to turn to Shakespeare's personal beliefs about the afterlife. I know that's not the main thrust of your book, but you do acknowledge a little bit that the closest we come, possibly, is in Hamlet. And I remember learning in, in high school English class hmm. that Shakespeare's son Hamnit, which is just a horrible name, but uh, okay, died no judgments. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> uh, died young. Is there any evidence for a more personal connection or special insights to Shakespeare's beliefs about death in that play?
1: Well, we can think about a couple of different things with Hamlet. First of all, yes, the name Hamnet sounds strange to us today. <laughs> However, we might, I mean, it sounds like a sort of a type of sandwich. That one might <laughs> order in a Wi-Fi cafe in the 1980s in an episode of Punky Brewster. But Hamnet and Hamlet are actually alternative spellings for the same name. So it is entirely possible that Shakespeare's son, Hamlet, could be referred to as that name we seem to prefer pronouncing Hamlet. So on the one hand, we can think about that play that's about the separation of a father and son, the trauma of that. We can think about that play as a way of his working through the loss of his son. But another way to think about that play in terms of Shakespeare's own belief is that Shakespeare, of course, lost a father, as Hamlet does, and if ghosts themselves are reflections of catholic beliefs in shakespeare's england we can think about the fact that the previous generation before shakespeare would have been catholic so a major scholar in my field stephen greenblatt points out that this ghost of hamlet's father is also in some ways the ghost of shakespeare's father in the sense that it's the ghost of catholicism revisiting the renaissance stage But it's also this ghostly Catholic figure in the sense that it's a ghost, which Catholics believed in and Protestants didn't particularly believe in. But it's also the ghost of this sort of Catholic figure, which would have been Shakespeare's father.
0: So you're asking a lot of different questions in this book.
1: But not in the interview. (laughs) No, I get to do that.
0: They all center around the basic question of what happens after death. But how did you then decide to structure the book? The,
1: the question of how to structure a book is always a really tough one. So the, the first way I thought about structuring the book was around figures. I was going to do a chapter on ghosts, a chapter on witches, a chapter on people giving funeral orations. But then it occurred to me that all of our personal journeys towards death and towards an understanding of the afterlife can be understood somewhat spatially. Like for all of us, there's the moment where we realize that we are going to die, whether imminently or abstractly. Or there's the moment where we're close to someone who is also dying. There's the moment where we're in the room, grieving the person who has just died. There's the moment when one enters the afterlife, whether in the imagination of those who have survived or if people actually do that. And there's the moment where, at least in Shakespeare's plays and other kinds of popular culture, where the person who's entered the afterlife returns. So I felt like the structure of the book to sort of move through an awareness of death to a closeness of death to death itself and then the return from the dead really links to this way in which we experience people dying, which is a fear that they will, um, an experience of them dying, and then a real kind of missing or mourning them.
0: Yeah, the book itself kind of like takes you on a little journey of... It is a journey. Take my hand, gentle reader, and I will take (laughs) you you. to a dark place. exactly. (laughs) Um, Speaking of spaces, though... I want to talk about the physical separation of the living and the dead, um, often represented through tombs or cemeteries. In Shakespeare's time, how firm were those barriers between the living and the
1: dead? One incredibly helpful book for me writing this book was a book by my colleague Carla Erickson in sociology called How We Die Now. And it's a book, it's a sociological study of how different kinds of families experienced having a loved one dying. And as I've been citing throughout this interview, she invokes this really crucial image of the threshold. That is, we can imagine death as this sort of doorway where the living and the dying are on one side of the doorway and the doorway looms. And at some point, the dying pass through the threshold into the arena of death. And then the living feel separated from this person they imagine on the other side of the threshold. That kind of stark difference between the living and the dead was less evident in Shakespeare's time not so much because some people in Shakespeare's time imagined ghosts as being real or because people went to the theater and saw dead figures brought back to life, but rather because the cemetery was sort of a more frequent space of sociality than we associate it with today. The, the space of the cemetery we think of today as being a space that's sort of outside the town or outside the city a place that one goes to on sort of special occasions, a sort of a long drive, there are gates around it. Cemeteries in Shakespeare's time were much more intermixed with the social life of the city or the town. And we can understand this for two different reasons. One is that in the early towns, the very center of a city was the church and its cemetery. And the city was completely organized around that space at its center. So in the medieval period, in the middle ages, the dead were actually at the very center of the lived life. And much of the sort of commonality or much of the sociality of the town would involve going back and forth to the church. And that would involve encountering the dead in the form of tombs. Another way to think about this is that the expansion of cities also incorporated the dead into lived experience. So even in those cities where the dead might be buried outside of the city to really separate the dead from the living, cities were expanding very quickly during Shakespeare's time. So people who once had an experience of being the dead were very much outside their lived experience all of a sudden found that neighborhoods and businesses were opening all around the spaces where the dead were buried. So because of this, the dead were very much present in Shakespeare's time for people living in Renaissance England in simply a way that they are not now, which is that one was always walking by and encountering tombstones and graveyards and evidence of the fact that people had died much more readily than we are today i think that we have graveyards and um, crematoriums and other kinds of kinds of places outside of cities today because we want to put the dead out of our minds in certain ways this simply wasn't the norm in shakespeare's time nor was it actually possible because of the way the cities themselves grew
0: yeah a little more more daily recognition of of our own mortality With this book, you managed to make his work insightful, funny, and serious, but most importantly, I think, engaging to everyone, not just the people who are Shakespeare buffs like yourself. So in writing this book and in your work as a professor teaching texts like these, how do you make them accessible
1: to broader audiences or first-year college students? Well, I think this is one of the funny things about Shakespeare is that now, in the 21st century, and this has been true for a while, Shakespeare becomes associated with very highbrow culture. In other words, we think of Shakespeare as this sort of very refined writer uh, who performed in court and has this very complex language. Um, And perhaps most of that is true. But what is also true of Shakespeare is that Shakespeare during his period was simply popular culture. That is, when you had like a Saturday to kill time, um, you might go to a Shakespeare play or you might go to bear baiting at the next door and watch a bear fight a dog to the death. Woo-hoo! Sort of like the monster truck festival nowadays. Um, Shakespeare was sort of everyone's culture, but it was a particularly lowbrow culture in the early modern period. And this is one of the things that I stress to students in classes is that Part of what's interesting about Shakespeare is this cr- sort of cachet that's been created for him, um, but that very cachet can be intimidating in certain kinds of ways that prohibit us from really understanding the plays. There is this sort of, there's both the completest culture around Shakespeare where people want to see every play, read every play, perform in lots of plays. Um, there's a geek culture around Shakespeare where people want to know kind of all the ins and outs and want to know about all the adaptations and whatnot. And that can make it hard to dive in, but, um, like with my students, I always start with really the closest possible analysis of the text and that takes it away from them needing to know about Shakespeare's life or needing to know about early modern culture. We really just start with the language and just start with the page and a single line of text and that's a way for them to really get into what is the richness of Shakespeare, which is the nuance of the language that by the way, Shakespeare was able to do with an elementary school education. So like Shakespeare himself, Shakespeare was neither highbrow culture, nor was he himself particularly highbrow in the sense of his schooling. Um, He didn't go to university. Didn't go to Grinnell College. He didn't go to Grinnell College. How could he possibly produce such works? It's true. It's a real question, actually. (laughs) Um, I think we're looking at an honorary degree for him, but I'll check in with the higher ups about that. Okay. Has writing this book helped you process your own thoughts on the afterlife? Writing this book hasn't particularly changed the way I think about what happens after death, but it has really helped me understand more clearly why certain people have certain kinds of beliefs. I think my younger self, my undergraduate self, when he encountered people who had other kinds of beliefs than I had, sort of got in that trap of, well, there has to be a right or wrong answer, Mm -hmm. and they must be wrong, or mine is more right, or something. And I think the more I've learned about the unknowability of the afterlife has allowed me to sort of let go of feeling like, even if we can't know what it is, there has to be one singular answer. Mm -hmm. But I think also to listen really carefully to people's stories about what they believe or their family believes or their their parents believe or what they're telling their children, what their church believes. I think this has really helped me understand what is important to them about their lives as they sort of tell me what's going to happen after their lives or where they think they're deceased loved ones are, it tells me a little bit about their relationship to people they care about. My dad's last book came out from Oxford University Press, and this book came out from Oxford University Press. And my dad didn't know I was going to write this book. And I think that on the one hand, for me personally, it's this important lifeline or tether to my dad, who's died, that we both published the same press. It's a way that I feel connected to him. And I don't in any way believe that Um, my dad somehow knows this in some way, but nonetheless, it feels like it's a way it's partially sort of an afterlife for him. And it's partially a way that, uh, maybe I'm continuing on his legacy, but I know that my mom recently remarked to me, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure your dad is so proud to know that you published this book. And I think we hear that belief a lot that people think that people who have passed on are sort of watching over us, are aware of our, they're smiling down on us when we um, win the lacrosse game or whatever. <laughs> I think this, this notion that people are watching over us, smiling down on us, keeping an eye on us, keeping us safe, I'm not saying that that isn't true because I have no idea, because none of us know, but I do think that that expresses a certain kind of relationship we wanna have with people who have died, or mm. kind of a way to assuage our sadness about people dying or the fears of those who aren't in our life anymore um, that our parents aren't around or that our grandparents aren't around or something, a way to kind of like deal with that anxiety or that fear is to imagine that they are still around in a certain kind of way in the sense that they're watching over us or sort of in the room with us. And on the one hand that doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in ghosts, it can mean that you just believe that their presence is there, you know, inside of you or in the spirit of what you're doing. But I think a lot of people embody that by saying, oh, well, um, They think that person is sort of was there with them when they walked across the stage of the beauty contest. Yeah.
0: That's kind of like cheating death in a sense, Um, that, you know, living on after death, whether it's in people's memories or, or other ways. And I find it alluring that Shakespeare may have, you know, cheated death himself because here we are talking about him centuries
1: later. We are indeed, and we'll be talking about him for centuries. Shakespeare shows up quite a bit in, for example, Star Trek. Starting The Next Generation has lots of Shakespeare in it. And the um, implication there, I think, is that, A, people will be reading Shakespeare 400 years from now, 1,000 years from now. So because of that, we ourselves should keep reading Shakespeare because Jean-Luc Picard and Data unless we're going be, are going to be performing Shakespeare. But the, the ghost of Shakespeare shows up quite a bit in popular culture. And I think part of that's about the fantasy of... You know, who would we most like to have dinner with or who would we want to have a conversation with? Shakespeare sort of always comes up. We sort of fantasize that we could know what his actual thoughts were, what his intents were. But I think the reappearance of Shakespeare's ghost in popular culture quite frequently signals this way in which we sort of know that Shakespeare is still with us. Mm. And that doesn't mean he's smiling down on us. And that doesn't mean that he himself is um, taking the hand when you're writing the great American novel and putting his plume through your pen. But rather that means that There's just a way in which he's sort of on our minds, even if we're not thinking about him actively.
0: Yeah. You uh, ask a lot of insightful questions in this book, and Shakespeare's work offers us a peek into, you know, how we make sense of this whole living and dying thing. But even after interviewing you, I don't know what happens after
1: I die. I have to say I'm a little disappointed. Uh, I expected more from you. I'm going to show you a card right now. And that card's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen to you after you die.
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) I I mean, hey, I'm happy as long as I know. But when you do figure out that answer, you have to promise to come back
0: on the podcast. You got it. Then we can really talk.
1: (laughs) Okay. I'll see you then or I'll see you in the afterlife.
0: Ooh. Okay.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you.
0: John Garrison is an associate professor of English here at Grinnell. His recently published book, Shakespeare in the Afterlife, is available now and you can find a link to it on our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. While working at the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. in the spring of 2016, John met Jan Franz van Dijkhausen. They were both working as research fellows, and they became friends quickly. Garrison encouraged Jan to pursue his book idea, The Literary History of Reconciliation, and they collaborated on the book proposal. Jan's previous books include subjects as uplifting as Pain and Compassion and Devil Theater, demonic possession and exorcism. I was curious what made him turn to the seemingly wholesome topic of reconciliation.
2: Well, I like to think that it was partly because of the sheer darkness of the earlier topics. Uh I guess that part of me wanted to turn to a more upbeat topic. Uh, After a whole book on early modern attitudes towards pain... You know, it seemed nice to turn to something lighter, and reconciliation seemed such seemed to fit the bill. It seemed it seemed perfect. The idea of writing a book about how people resolve their conflicts, how they make up, and what literary texts have to say about that. I guess I was vaguely hoping to be able to say something uplifting about that, <laughs> um, but unfortunately, the book became darker <laughs> uh, as the research progressed. Um, and I came to realize more and more that reconciliation often is not a particularly happy affair. Hmm. So I ended up gravitating towards, you know, the, the darkness, I guess. You know, uh-huh. there is this black hole that just
0: keeps <laughs> pulling me in. Yeah. Do you think that was uh, an, like a natural phenomenon or do you think that's something about you and your, you know, your interest as a scholar that kind of directs you towards those things? Well, in this particular case, I like to think that it was the, the
2: source materials that I was working with that uh-huh. made me change course, as it mm-hmm. were, that made
0: me adjust my argument. Yeah. So what did you discover writing this this latest book about, about reconciliation, that it was not as, as hopeful as you had perhaps imagined?
2: Yeah, well, one thing that, that became increasingly clear to me is that especially in my pre-20th century case studies, um reconciliation often serves to reconfirm to reinscribe dominant hierarchies Mm. hierarchies in terms of class social class in terms of gender in terms of race uh, intergenerational hierarchies too and um, what's interesting is that that conflict often emerges from a problem in you know precisely those areas Mm. certainly in the literary texts that i've looked at so Uh, Conflict emerges from the dysfunctionality of male power, say, you know, patriarchal power. And then conflict resolution could then take the form of an undermining of male power. Like, okay, we've seen that male power is actually what causes all the conflict. Maybe we should get rid of male power (laughs) or reform it in such a way that it is no longer destructive, right? Um, And that is a real problem. Um, for instance, Dickens, Charles Dickens, is very acutely aware of how patriarchal power generates conflict. At the same time, he kind of shies away from the idea that conflict resolution then should mean, should entail a dismantling of, of male power. Like the mm-hmm. idea that maybe we should get rid of male power because it causes so much conflict just goes too far. It's too unsettling. Uh-huh. It's too subversive. So he finds an alternative route in which... Conflicts are resolved in such a way that ultimately, for instance, male power, patriarchal power, remains intact. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to, to look at what that requires. Hmm. So that means, for instance, there's a classic sort of pattern that I've found in in Shakespeare, in John Milton, in in, in Dickens, in which a figure of male power will acknowledge that they've wronged someone, but only after a female character has first humiliated themselves before him. Mm. So that creates a safe space in which a male character can acknowledge that they've wronged someone without jeopardizing their status
0: huh.
2: as a figure of power. Yeah And another thing is that this is something that I'm working on with John Garrison right now. Reconciliation often requires um, an acceptance. Of injustice, mm. an acceptance on the part of the downtrodden, if you like, on the part of the oppressed, on the part of the powerless, of the injustices that the forms of injustice that gave rise to conflict in the first place. There's an amazing study by David Blight of um, the Civil War in American memory, and he shows how after the Civil War there was an urge to reconcile between the North and the, and the South, as it were. Okay. And he, he then shows how in order for that reconciliation to be feasible, what had to be suppressed was what the Civil War had been about, mm. <laughs> the racial dimension right. of the Civil War. Because that's something you can't really compromise about, right? You can't, how can you reconcile about slavery? You're either for it or you're against it. Uh-huh. But then if, if that's what you do, if you remain committed to that belief, you know, a belief in in racial justice, that really gets in the way of a different kind of reconciliation. So there's a terrible, tragic choice between allowing conflict to exist or resolving it, but at the expense Mm. of the ideals that you're committed to. Yeah. So it's very much uh, a topic that's relevant for the modern day world and certainly for
0: the United States right now. Uh I was going to ask you about the Civil War and, like, other examples of, you know, truth and reconciliation and things like that and how how you know, the findings from your book maybe apply outside of the pages of the yeah, books. Yeah,
2: that's a great question. Well, I've come away from writing this book with an in, sort of an intensified skepticism, of reconciliation and especially of the language of forgiveness, mm. okay? In, in the book, I use reconciliation as a sort of a general term for conflict resolution, you know, the settling of differences. But the ways in which we reconcile differ sometimes radically, you know, over history and between different cultures. And so one really dominant um, sort of template, right, for thinking about, Conflict resolution in our culture is the language of Christian forgiveness, and I've come away with a a certain scepticism of that. Mm. And I can cite an example of that that's very, that's you know fairly recent, and I think puts the issues on the on on the table. The infamous Access Hollywood tapes Mm -hmm. and the evangelical response. The Well, I I shouldn't say evangelical response, but the the response by certain prominent evangelical leaders to that, what they would say, for instance, Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, said, we should forgive Donald Trump. Our theology revolves around forgiveness Mm. because we we know, evangelicals know, that we are all sinful. We are all in need of forgiveness. So we should be forgiving of Donald Trump as well. And that sounds beautiful, right? (laughs) Uh, And that sounds generous. Right. Um, And it sounds like a moral sort of something to aspire to morally. But hang on. (laughs) (laughs) uh, There's a couple of of catches here. Right. Um, First of all, this kind of spontaneous forgiveness tends to be offered with, let's say, a special enthusiasm to powerful, white, wealthy heterosexual uh men right <laughs> right um, the views entertained by those evangelical leaders on say female sexual purity or on gay marriage are often considerably less forgiving yeah right so in fact behind that l- beautiful language of forgivingness mm-hmm. um, lurk all kinds of assumptions about whose uh, wrongdoing should be forgiven, mm-hmm. and there's a whole moral code behind that that is not politically neutral. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. and also the idea that we're all sinful and therefore we should be forgiving towards e- e- each other flattens out any idea of wrongdoing, mm-hmm. like it implies wrongly, I think, that there are no um, gradations of wrongdoing. Mm. If we're all equally sinful, then nobody is, as mm-hmm. it were, okay? So um, that, too, is, I think, um, a language, that a narrative about wrongdoing and reconciliation that has to be treated with a healthy dose of skepticism.
0: Yeah. Can you give a, a notable example of, of reconciliation from one of the books that you studied and explain how the power structures kind of play a role in the process?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, John Garrison and I, for instance, are now looking at Shakespeare's late plays, which have often been read as, you know, revolving around forgiveness. Mm. Like he moves on from tragedy and um, examines forgiveness in the late plays. Um, But, for instance, there's uh, a moment at the end of The Tempest at which Prospero, the wronged Duke of Milan, attempts to forgive his brother Antonio, who usurped his dukedom. And Antonio is now in his power. And he says, I quote off the top of my head, so there might be you I'll, know, I'll double check it for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should double check it. There might be a couple of mistakes in there. But he says, For you, most wicked sir, whom to call brother would even infect my mouth. Mm. I do forgive thy rankest fault, all of them, and require my dukedom of thee, which I know thou must perforce restore. Is that generous forgiveness? (laughs) Is that a forgiveness in which you let go of resentment? I don't think so. I mean, he's just reminded him that he's not going to call him brother. In In fact, that would infect his mouth. So he does not re-acknowledge him as his brother. There's no renewal of the fraternal relationship. Uh I don't think we can be bros, you know, even now. (laughs) and also he reminds, you know, Prospera reminds Antonio of the power he has over him. Mm. I want my jigdom back and I'm afraid you have no choice but to return it because you're now in my power.
0: Yeah.
2: And interestingly, that moment has often been celebrated as a moment of beautiful forgiveness, it's uplifting, and I'm, I think skeptical, I'm skeptical of that. Or, you know, to read that moment in those terms requires that we
0: suppress a whole lot of details about that. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of a lot of the reconciliation that you're talking about is tied up with Christianity and different notions of Absolutely, yeah. divine forgiveness. Absolutely. Um, yeah,
2: we model, it's, it's fascinating how we model the way in which we understand reconciliation between people on the language of divine forgiveness in Uh which god forgives sinful human beings Hmm. and applying that to interpersonal reconciliations is actually a really
0: fraught thing to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can imagine um so in in the books that you talk about in your book is it mainly christian theology that we're we're talking about and how does it does it differ i mean because you're looking at texts from various centuries how does it maybe change not just the religious aspect but the idea of reconciliation
2: yeah that's a, that's a great question what i've noted in 20th century literature especially is an attempt to move away from uh christian theological notions of forgiveness or to, you know an attempt to define reconciliation between people in other ways, mm-hmm. in ways, ways that are not modeled on divine forgiveness mm-hmm. of uh, sinful, sinful human beings. There's an amazing example of that in uh, James Joyce's Ulysses in which Leopold Bloom forgives, if that's the right term, his wife Molly for her adultery. And the question is, why does he do so? And there's, there's the uh, extraordinary chapter, Ithaca, in which you, you know, it's a famous chapter in which there is a sort of an uh, anonymous catechist, a cate- catechist, right? That's yeah. how it's pronounced. Yep. Yeah. Um, who asks some other, you know, anonymous narrative voice, why did Leopold Bloom forgive his wife? Why did he end up feeling equanimity? So he feels anger at first, and then he, he feels equanimity. And there's a long answer and it's sort of a pseudoscientific, scientific, impersonal impersonal language. And it ends with well, you know, why did he feel equanimity? He meditated on the lethargy of nascent matter, the apathy of the stars. Why does he forgive? Because he meditates on the apathy of the stars. <laughs> so it's like a cosmic indifference. Right. Yeah. If the stars don't care about my <laughs> little human, my puny little human right. conflicts, why should I? Why should I? Maybe sh- I should adopt some of the indifference, some of the apathy of the stars, uh-huh. some of the apathy that stars feel or don't feel. Um, that, of course, is a is a fascinatingly different model of of reconciliation. It's also uh, I think exposed in Ulysses as ultimately falling short mm. because Ulysses also addresses the whole uh, history of colonial violence. Um, and the one question which that novel raises is, well, can we reconcile af- after colonial conflict, Okay, a- after colonial injustice and violence, in this manner by adopting the apathy of the stars or do we need something else right okay what about righteous anger (laughs) does righteous anger have a place yeah Uh, if so uh, what kind of place and that's very much an, an open question um so that's an interesting example i think a fascinating example of of a novel that tries to move away from reconciliation as modeled on divine forgiveness very famously um in a novel by J.M. Coetzee from, I think it's 1999, uh, Disgrace. Yep. There is a, a an examination of what forms of reconciliation can t- can take in post-apartheid uh, South Africa, and more broadly, I think in post-traumatic societies. And the the term post-traumatic in itself is problematic? Can, are you ever, is a society ever post-traumatic? When does that mm. start? And that novel also examines and ultimately rejects, I think, the idea that theological language can serve as a template for understanding reconciliation between people, especially in this kind of fraught political context. And what I argue in the book is that, that disgrace suggests that Reconciliation in post-apartheid South Africa can really only start if a white male character comes to know, comes to experience what it is like, what it feels like to be vulnerable and marginalized and excluded and powerless. And he does so by identifying with stray dogs that are euthanized. (laughs) and so he comes to sort of experience a total, you know, uh, sense of fragility and vulnerability. And only when that happens can reconciliation begin. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty pessimistic right. view, right, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's it's. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's also a bleak view.
0: Yeah, because how many people are going to want to force themselves to, to feel that way? Exactly, exactly. That... that requires
2: a complete shedding right, of any sort of power or status. Um, at the same time, it is a powerful notion to entertain. Mm-hmm. It raises that question of, you know, how, to what extent can we feel the pain of others to return to my earlier book, Pain and Compassion? Right. You know, to, to, that's a, a question that a lot of literary texts that I've looked at. Keep re-examining. Mm-hmm. You know, can we feel the pain of others, and what does that mean, and what is what is what does that require? Mm. So.
0: are there any notable examples that you found where the the power dynamics of reconciliation or forgiveness are more balanced um, or optimistic? I guess.
2: Well, I'm, I I wish I could say yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I I'm an optimistic person, you know, in spite of everything. <laughs> right. Um, but I've not found a single case study in which that happens in any kind of unqualified or unproblematic manner. Mm. Reconciliation without power, or reconciliation as serving a progressive cause, is imagined often in, in the works uh, that I've looked at as taking place in some kind of Im- postponed future, right. beyond uh, the confines of the novel itself. Mm. So <laughs> there's no... <laughs> Um you'll have to write your affirmative answer to this
0: uh-huh, you'll have to write that book, I guess the one yeah, yeah, this is the happy sequel, yes. you know? so you've been in Grinnell for the past few days um, and you've been helping teach and visiting with classes with uh Professor John Garrison in the English Department. What have you found Grinnellians to be particularly interested in in the work that you've been talking about?
2: One thing that's really struck me in all of the seminars is how much they revolve around open-ended debate, mm. um, you know, and a commitment to open-ended debate, and an acceptance of the loose ends that may come with that, an acceptance of the idea that, you know, at the end of a seminar, there may be all these questions still sort of hovering in the air yeah. and not quite resolved. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it doesn't seem to make anybody nervous. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, and so there's a faith, it seems, that that um, that things will work out, Yeah. okay, that it's good to end on all these unresolved questions uh-huh. and to, uh, to have all these loose ends because somehow or, or other, that will yield insights mm. in the slightly longer run that you wouldn't wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. Yeah. And this is maybe partly John Garrison's teaching style. Um, I mean, like he's very much about open-ended debate. But I like to think that that's a Grinnellian thing yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's good. It's great. Uh-huh. And this is all about resisting an easy idea, which mm. is that reconciliation is nice. Yeah. And
0: they. Ran with it. <laughs> uh-huh. Great. Well, thank you, Jan, for thank joining you. me to talk. And Thanks uh, for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Jan Frans van Dijkhausen is an associate professor of English literature at Leiden University in the Netherlands. In typical Dutch fashion, Jan showed up for our interview on a bike. He was only visiting for a few days, but of course he got his hands on a bike. From where? I don't know. Maybe he borrowed it. Maybe he stole it from an unassuming first-year student but I'm sure he reconciled with the student afterwards. Although, we might have to investigate the power dynamics of that situation. You can find a link to his book, The Literary History of Reconciliation, on our website. There's a chapter in the book specifically about Shakespeare, but it really only scratches the surface. So Jan and John are co-writing a book-length study of reconciliation in Shakespeare together. And when they do, you'll hear about it here on the podcast. We're really lucky at Grinnell College to be able to enjoy live concerts from artists of all backgrounds, sounds, and styles. A few weeks ago, Grinnell concerts hosted Victoria Vark, Thin Lips, and Camp Cope live in Gardner Lounge. Our musical correspondent, Gabriel Schubert, class of 2020, snuck into the green room before the show to get a word in with one of the performers. Camp Cope is an independent
3: alternative punk band from Melbourne, Australia. Their music is raw and emotionally provocative, but maintains a sound that is pleasing and welcoming for new listeners. For fans of alternative, indie, and punk rock music, this is an act I'd recommend listening to. One of the most impressive things Camp Cope does is vocalize their strong feminist ideologies into an incredibly emotive and powerful package that's wrapped in a casual and accessible sound. The band's music is political by default as they are an act comprised of all women. I got a chance to speak with the band's drummer and de facto band mom, Sarah Thompson, or Tomo, about the group's creative process, the Me Too movement, and the band's future music.
4: Yeah, when we started playing and people started wanting to hear what we had to say and people started talking at us, it was kind of just happened. It wasn't like a, a um, something we decided to do um, lyrically. And um, like, I don't know, we've always been quite political from like when we were quite young.
3: Some of their most impassioned songs take aim at the male-dominated culture of the music industry and the world's patriarchy at large. Another power that comes from Camp Cope's music is the fact that these songs are grounded in reality, in the lived experiences that these women have had navigating the music industry.
4: I'd say, like, a good 95% of the lyrical content is lived. There's a bit of observational stuff tossed in there, but... The opener, for example, pretty much every line in that song is about people from different bands that have told us different things. And there were pretty much direct quotes. And um, I remember the first time Georgia sent us the, like, just an acoustic sort of, you know, phone recording of the song. And I listened to it and I I was just like, I can't believe you've managed to rhyme all these literal things. Because there were definitely things we'd talk about and be like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe this person said this. I can't believe, and like, like, you rhymed it all together. Good job.
3: Historically, and continuing to this day, women's stories of sexism and misogyny are often ignored. Camp Cope's music is a loud and aggressive refusal of that norm. The intersection of music and social discourse is what makes Camp Cope's music so poignant. It is arriving at exactly the right moment. The patriarchy is being dragged out in the light by feminists all over the globe in all industries. Camp Cope is creating a space for women to find solidarity in music. Songs like The Opener are a rallying cry against the sexism that takes place in the music industry. Tomo said it best in our interview.
4: If you've got a platform to use, like, you shouldn't really waste it. Like, if if you're getting questioned on this stuff, then you should answer it. Like, you shouldn't just play the fence-sitting card and just, you know... I don't want to get involved because then you get in trouble and then you have, you know, people on either side where it's like, no, like, your opinion should matter and people should stand up for what they think they should stand up for, so.
3: Camp Cope released their second record, How to Socialize and Make Friends, just as the Me Too movement was picking up steam. The songs, The Opener and The Face of God, are emblematic of the struggles that women face on a daily basis, ranging from casual sexism to institutional misogyny and sexual violence. The Face of God is the third song on that album, and it is a deeply emotional piece that deals with the themes of sexual assault and victim-shaming and blaming. In the chorus, Georgia sings, Could it be true? You don't seem like that kind of guy. Not you. You've got that one song that I like. And later in the fourth verse, And I saw it, the face of God. And he turned himself away from me, and said I did something wrong, that somehow what happened to me was my fault.
4: Georgia in particular was very nervous about releasing it, like, and we were kind of like, no, nah, like, it's, like, it's got to be on the record, like, you know, and, and she was like, yeah, true, like, kind of thing, and we recorded it and she was still, like, you know, had mixed feelings about putting it out because to be like, people are going to start pointing fingers at people and people are going to, like, think that I'm talking about this person or this person and I don't want, you know, Um, and then Me Too happened like after that and before the record came out. So it was like between recording it and the album being released and it was kind of like, well, now I'm really happy that it's out there because like people are listening to this, like listening to people's stories and, you know, believing them. So it felt good to have it on the record, even though it was unintentional as a Me Too sort of Inverted commas, Me Too song.
3: Cam Cope's music, in addition to being purely enjoyable, is making an important contribution to the conversation surrounding sexual assault and sexual respect. The Face of God captures a complex range of emotions that exist in solidarity with survivors and rage at the tendencies to protect men who commit sexual assault. The message at the end is very clear, and victim-blaming. As the Me Too movement and other women's rights movements continue to gain traction on a global scale, I'm interested to see where their music goes from here. Since they've been touring for so long, Tomo speculated on what's coming next for the group.
4: I think there'll be a bit more more going on, maybe, because we'll actually have some time to think about it and time to record it, as opposed to sitting in a room together and uh, playing songs live twice each and then running away again.
3: (laughs) Unfortunately, on the night of the concert, Kelly, the group's bassist, was sick and Camp Cope could not perform as the rocking trio we were all hoping for. But Georgia played a solo show of songs new, old and unreleased. The atmosphere in Gardner is always pretty intimate, but Georgia's one-woman show was truly special. If you're interested, check out Camp Cope on Spotify or Apple Music
0: and see for yourself what they are all about. That was Gabriel Schubert, one of the student workers plying their craft here in the Office of Communications. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're going to talk to this year's commencement speaker, author Amy Tan. I'm very excited for that, so I hope you tune in. We'll also chat with the owners of the new bakery in town, Grin City Bakery, which is opening its doors soon. And Anya Chamberlain from the class of 2019 will explain why she sat in the Rosenfield Center's Smith Gallery for five days in a row with a dozen loaves of bread, feeding and drawing people with bread all day. Music for today's show comes from Poddington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, Email us at podcast at or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.